All right, James chapter four, read with me if you will, the f- uh, starting in verse seven. James four, beginning in verse seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James brings to us here a sobering passage. It's a passage that is to weigh heavy on you. It's a passage in the word of God that is not to have us laughing so much. So I needed to get Jake's hairstyle out of the way for when we came to this passage in James 4. And what's the issue here that would have James so serious? Why so serious, James, we might ask? Well, as you saw last week, James is telling the church, the Christians, the believers, that their lives and their looseness with sin are like the world. And he said last week that you are friends with the world, a friendship with the world. And I said last week, and just to remind you again today, this does not mean that you, have, that you are not to have friends with people that are in the world, the people that are not believers. That's not the case. Talking about the world system that loves sin, that opposes God, that's what he's referring to. He says they have friendship with the world. And because they have friendship with the world, they are now enemies of God. If you will look at verse four of chapter four, James says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so here we are realizing that this is not a message to the lost world. He is not calling people who do not know God to repent and turn to God. That's not what this book of James is about. This book of James is a letter written to Christian people. It's written to churches, believers that have been spread out, and we, we, we know that. And yet, they're not living right. They are living dishonorable lives toward God, and this bothers James so much. He knows Jesus to be a true savior. He knows Jesus to be worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He knows Jesus deserves our worship, our attention. He knows that our hearts are to be loving God. And when he sees people who profess God, not trusting God or loving God, this bothers James as it should. And so he writes this way. We ended our passage last week at verse six, where James quotes Proverbs chapter three, verse 34, and he says in verse six, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is against those people who are prideful before him. 
God is opposed to them. God will stop them. God will show himself to be God over and above those who are not God. And he can do that and he will do that. And on the contrary, those who will believe that and acknowledge that and humble themselves before God, recognizing that he alone is God. He alone is the maker, the one, the one who's better than everything else as we just sang. To those people who humble themselves in that way, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. That's how it ended. Douglas Moose says, if God gives the grace to meet his claim on our lives to those who are humble, then we must become humble if we expect to enjoy that grace. If you want to live a blessed life walking in step with the Lord, then you must humble yourself. You must be humble before God. You must. That's what this is about. From verse six, the quote from Proverbs three, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James then goes into what we read beginning in verse seven. 10 commands for the believer. In your bulletin, it says that we will call this sermon 10 commands for the humble believer. 10 commands. In these four verses, we have 10 imperatives, 10 commandments, if you will, from James to believers on what it really means to be humble, and they're heavy. And we're gonna have 10 points today. But I wanna show you how serious this was. In the very next book of the Bible is 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter five. 1 Peter chapter five, and you, read, you heard me just read James four, seven through 10, and I want you to listen attent attentively here at 1 Peter five, five through nine. Two different guys, two different authors, two different backgrounds, if you will. James is the brother of Jesus. Peter was a fisherman, all right? Both burdened for the church to be faithful to its faithful leader. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 5, and I want you to just hear how very similar this is. Likewise, this is 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The exact same statement from Proverbs 3.34 that James uses in chapter four, Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, okay? So watch this, verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This sounds very similar to what James writes in James 4. This lets us know that it is a big deal to the New Testament believers, to those biblical authors, to those early Christians, that the church stand up and be the church, that we be a faithful witness to our faithful God and Savior, that Christians would reflect Christ. This is important. And so James now turns 
to the remedy, if you will, for friendship with the world. If you are a friend of the world, wrongly so. If you are opposed to God, wrongly so. You need to be aware that this is a bad thing. You need to be aware that something's not right there. And so James has the solution. It's all about, okay, it's all about our our feeling, our conviction, our response to this problem. And so I want to use two words today that I hope will shape your repentant faith, your your faithfulness back toward God. Two words here today, uh, attitude and posture. Attitude and posture. Now the words attitude and posture uh, go hand in hand. They are very similar. Some people may even try to say that they basically mean the same thing. But here's how I'm gonna use them. Attitude being your feeling about something. Good attitude, bad attitude, okay? You're feeling about something and posture being the displaying of that attitude, okay? That's, that's gonna be my difference today. Attitude is gonna be how you feel about this and posture is going to be the displaying or the showing or the positioning of how that attitude is, okay? Our posture and attitude toward sin against God shows what type of hearts we really have. Let me say that again. Now, we know that James has been all up on faith without works is dead. You can say you're a Christian all day long, but it does not necessarily mean you are if you are not a believer at heart, if you are not truly focused on God and broken over your sins. And so, okay, our attitude and posture, let me say it again, our attitude and posture toward sin against God shows us what our heart is really like. Attitude and posture toward sin against God. And it is with that in mind that James gives these 10 commands. When you have kids, you learn very quickly that parenting is hard. Parenting is so hard. And sometimes us parents don't do a good job of parenting, and we make life hard on our kids. I'll give you some examples. Everything that my kids go to, they have to be taken there by me or my wife. We have to take them. And everything they go to, we have to take them. Well, me and my wife have a problem with running late, all right? Don't, don't judge us too hard for that, but we have a problem with running late. We're late sometimes to things, okay? So us running late means the kids are running late. And I can't tell you how many times a teacher has sent home a note saying kids shouldn't be late to school and it's not the kid's fault. Or a coach has said, if you're late, I'm gonna make you run extra and it's not the kid's fault, right? And so there have been many times where I have had to teach my kids about the proper attitude and posture of being late. When you're late to school or you're late to practice, the teacher's already talking, coach is already coaching, how you enter in late makes all the difference, does it not? When we pull up to that parking lot late as can be stressed, I will often tell my kids, you can ask them, don't you walk in there with your head high, smiling and laughing like it's cool to be late. 
You better put your tail between your legs, lower your head, put your backpack where it goes, and get, ter- get there to your desk and get to working like that. You see what I mean by attitude and posture? If you think the attention on you for being late is a good thing, if you think everybody looking at you and, and everybody uh, 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 noticing that you're late is a good thing, that is a bad attitude and posture. If you think disrupting practice and coaches' plans and coaches' time is, is, is cool and, and you're not one of those cool kids that arrives early and does everything right, if you think that's a good thing, that's a bad attitude and posture. That's a bad look. That is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, granted, it's my fault that they're having to deal with that situation. Now, we know that. But I tell you that because of attitude and posture makes all the difference. When James says, even the demons believe, come on, I'm looking for a life that models trust in Jesus. That's what James says. Then your attitude and posture toward your sins shows us your real heart. And see, here's the thing. The the world wants to put their attitude and posture on the good works they can find. We search all over. We search our closets. We search our best days to try to find some goodness that we've done. And then we hang our hat on how we are such good people. This is not what James is teaching. You're going to see this today. It is your attitude and posture toward your sins, which we all have, that really reveals your heart. So James gives these 10 commandments beginning in verse 7. Number one, submit yourselves therefore to God. There's kind of some bookends here because number one is submit yourself to God and, 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 and number 10 is humble yourselves before the Lord. So you see what he's doing. He's got 10 commandments, but the first is submit to God. The last is humble yourself before God. That's the issue here. Have you bowed your knee? Have you bowed your heart? Have you surrendered to God? Is he God of your life or are you God of your life? And let's be honest about that. Does he call the shots? Is he the commander in chief? Is he the boss of your life or are you? And point number one and point number 10 make clear, humble yourself before God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. You know, submit's a good word, is it not? Submit means I'm going to do what you want me to do. That's what submission is, right? If you're in a fight, right? and you fight or wrestle until somebody taps out, you're trying to put them into submission. And you both go until one person says, okay, I'll give in. Are you right now in a fight with God on who's gonna be Lord of your life and how, what you're gonna do tomorrow and how you're gonna treat your enemies and how you're gonna handle bad views and how you're gonna handle bad teaching and how you're gonna handle church, how you're gonna handle sin, how you're gonna handle things in your life? Are y'all in a struggle and we're waiting to see who's gonna submit? Is it gonna be you or God? Who's gonna give in first? You need to hear James's words that we need to submit. When I was thinking about this, I started telling myself that this is a training issue. In the ministry and in the church, we often find ourselves going, this is the discipleship issue. This is a discipleship issue. That person either has not been taught what they are to do or They aren't submitting to what they have been taught to do. It's a discipleship issue. And if you've ever worked in a place with employees, you know what I mean when you say this is a training issue, right? Why are they so bad at their job? Either you haven't taught them what to do, and so it's not their fault, or you have taught them what to do, and they don't do it, so it is their fault. You understand? And submission is this way. Do you know that God is God? Do you know that Christ is Lord? 
Is this a training issue in your heart? Are you rejecting him because you must not be a believer, although you say you're a believer? You haven't bowed your knee? Or is this God's fault because God has not taught you, because you didn't know? It's a training issue. Now, we can start to ask, why, why, why aren't we submitting ourselves to God if that's the first point? And there may be examples like we're incapable, not smart enough. I don't like the one that's in charge. I don't like his rules. I don't like what he wants me to do, right? Just like in the workplace, you would hear people say, I didn't know, or I don't like my boss, or I don't like my job, or they don't pay me enough, or I don't like that customer, right? Or I just don't care. I'm doing this to upset my parents, right? We make all these excuses. But when this is a training issue of submitting ourselves to God, and we have learned that the Bible says submit ourselves to God, and we know God our Father to be worthy of submitting ourselves to, right? When we know that, we would find ourselves gladly submitting to him because it is only in God that we have found life and love and forgiveness and purpose. And just like at your work or on your team, where you submit to whoever's in charge because you like your leader, how much more so with God that we should be a submissive people? Commentator Nystrom says, the idea of submission carries with it the full range intended by the term repentance. When we start talking about attitude and posture, we must start talking about repentance. Are you broken, convicted of your sins? Have you turned to God? Do you do that now regularly? He says, we are talking about the full range intended by the term repentance, which is not only a change of direction, but also a humble and contrite spirit. The posture of what you're doing with your repentance over your sins, but also the heart, the brokenness, the, the sorrow felt because you have sinned against God. This attitude that then leads to that posture is what the Bible is looking for in somebody who claims Christ, a life of submission, a willingness to submit to authority. Here, the authority of God shows one's humility as genuine. All of us can be forced to do something with a bad attitude. But when we gladly, willingly submit before God, it shows a genuine humility. God owns our heart. Number one, submit yourselves to God. Number two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is pretty cool because you have parallels here. And we'll see that when we get to verse eight. You've got resist, the devil will flee. You've got draw near, and God will draw near. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know what it means to resist, don't you? You know what it means to not give in? You know what it, it means to recognize this is bad for me, and so I'm going to stay away from it. Hey, this may be tempting. This may be something that has my attention, but I know I should not. Resist the devil. So this is important to understand why the Bible is such a big deal in our lives because the Bible tells us what the devil is actually doing. The, 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 the devil is not a bad luck charm in your life, right? The devil is not just some negativity in your life. The devil's not a rainy day when you had some plans outside. The devil is a real spiritual force that wants to kill you, steal you, and destroy you. 
The devil wants you to do anything with your life except for surrender your heart to Jesus. If you will do anything in the world, go get rich and be happy. Go get poor and be miserable. Go get smart and think you're something. Be dumb and uneducated and think that you're not, right? Be whatever you want to be as long as you do not bow your knee to Christ and the devil is happy. But if you will hear verse seven that says, submit yourself to God, then the devil hates that. When you resist the devil, you are aware of who he is, what he's against. He is trying to get people to go against God. One commentator says, when we resist the devil's purposes, he will, James promises, flee from you. This ought to encourage you. Some of you all think that the devil is always with you. Some of you all think that the devil is sitting on your shoulder day and night, getting you and getting you and getting you and getting you. Some of you all think that you can never get him away. But the Bible says right here that if we will fight back, if we will resist, if we will trust in Christ, he flees. He goes on to say, when he does, James promises that the devil will flee from you. Whatever power Satan may have, the Christian can be absolutely certain that he has been given the ability to overcome that. That power. Do you hear that? Believers can overcome the power of the devil. Now, is the devil real? Is he strong? Is he working? Yes. But is there a greater power? Absolutely. And you need to know this. And that means you need to resist. That means you need to fight. You need to say no. You need to push. You need to discipline. You need to run. You need to flee. You need to avoid, right? You need to guard your heart. John writes in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There is no comparison between God Almighty and the devil. Both are strong. One is way stronger. Both impact lives. One way more. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us, in his divine power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God wants us to live a life that honors him. God wants us to be holy and godly like him, and he has given us the power to do that. We must recognize what the devil is trying to do, and we must learn to resist. Some of you all would admit here today that you can't say no to anything. You can't say no to a kid that wants one more cookie. Imagine that. If you can't say no to a kid that wants one more cookie, you're gonna have a hard time parenting. I hear people say all the time, oh, I just can't say no. I'm a sucker. I don't like confrontation. I don't either. You better learn to fight against the devil. You better learn to fight. If you don't think he'll tear up your marriage, just wait. If you don't think he'll tear up your parenting, just wait. You know what I've been hearing since 2005, actually since 2003, from a ton of people around here? Oh, you better be careful having kids, man. When you grow up, man, it just ain't gonna work. When you grow up, they're gonna turn on you. They're gonna turn on you. They're not gonna like the church. They're not gonna like God. You just wait. There are people here in this church that tell me and my wife that on a regular basis. Well, if all I know is what the devil's doing, then you're right. The Bible says we can resist the devil. The Bible says we can go all in on the ways of Christ, praying our eyes out day in, day and night, following the truth, resisting the power of the devil and asking God to keep our children close to him. And guess what? The Bible says he'll give us the power to do that. You gotta learn to resist though. Don't y'all remember that day in the desert when Jesus had not eaten for 40 days? 
And the devil showed up and tempted him like crazy. You know what Jesus did? He resisted three times, three straight temptations. One was simply to eat when he was hungry, and he did not. He would not do what the devil wanted him to do. And do you know exactly what the Bible says the devil did when he resisted? He fled. He left. Folks, if you think life is so hard because the devil's all around you, fight. Fight God's way. Resist the devil. Number one, submit yourselves to God. Number two, resist the devil. Number three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the parallel opposite of number two, what he just said. You resist the devil, the devil will flee. You draw near to God and God will draw near to you. This is a beautiful thing. If you are here today and you feel like life has been getting you and Christianity has not been as sweet as it's supposed to be, you need to hear verse eight. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a beautiful thing to think that if Jesus is standing over there on the other side of the stage, and verse eight tells you, hey, just take one step this direction, and you go one step as hard as that is, because right now you're saying, man, I can't go running to Jesus. I'm just so beat down. I'm just so discouraged. I cannot make that run to him. I just can't. Life is so hard. But the Bible says in verse eight that if you will take one step toward him, what's he gonna do? Take one step towards you. It says it there. Do you believe or do you not believe? Is the truth the truth? Is the word the word or is it not? He is ready to start walking back toward you believers if you will submit, if you will resist, if you will come. What a beautiful thing. The very power that God will use to get the devil out of your life is the very power that God will use to get God in your life. Notice that this even more so shows us that he is not talking about unbelievers. You don't worship God Okay, you don't worship God without God. You don't. What we tell unbelievers is you need to see the cross where God gave his son to die for you because of your sins and you need to repent and turn to him. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you know God, you know who God is, you have a relationship with God and there's a struggle there, there's a tension there, there's a waywardness there and you need to come back to him and God is ready for that. One commentator says this, the promise that God will come near to those who come near to him does not of course apply to the salvation of unbelievers but it refers to the restoration of fellowship, to fellowship of Christians. Like the father of the prodigal son God stands always ready to welcome back his children who turn from their sinful ways. It's bad church when you think, I can't get back focused on Jesus because I've been so far from him. That's bad church. It's bad church when you think, I can't get back focused on Jesus because I've been so bad and these people are gonna know it. That's bad church. It's bad Jesus when I make you feel like that. It's bad Jesus when you think that I make you feel like that. I mean, bad church. Bad church when we think that way. Good church is always God receives us back. God receives us back. God receives us back. Verse six said last week, but he gives more grace. Like the waterfall that never stops flowing. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Come on running back because that's ultimately all we're doing. Every one of us right here need to be turning from our sins, submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil, and turning back to Jesus this morning. Every one of us. That is what this is about. We are to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. But notice how similar 
And yet at the same time, how very different this is from do good, don't do bad. Very similar, right? Resist the devil, draw near to God. It could be confused if you're not really focused here on, man, be a good person, do good, and and don't do bad. But notice, the issue here is what's your love, what's your heart, what's your belief? Is it the devil and the things of the devil? Is it friendship with the world and the things the world loves? Or is it God who made you, who speaks to you, who loves you, who teaches you? There is such a difference there. We need God in our lives. We need closeness to God, nearness to God in our lives. God is the difference maker, and so we are to hear, draw near to God. Number four, cleanse your hands. It says it there in verse eight. Cleanse your hands. Or your translation may say, wash your hands. Now, obviously, we've heard the Bible teach us that dirt on your hands does not mean you have dirt in your heart. But dirt in your heart will always mean you've got dirt in your hands, dirt on your life. Remember, Jesus taught that. It's not what goes inside, it's not what goes in the mouth that makes you a sinner. It's what came out of the mouth that made you a sinner because it came off your heart. And so what a statement here from James. You need to go wash your hands. You ever had somebody tell you before, you need to go wash your mouth out? Now, you probably needed to brush your teeth, do some mouthwash, but the issue wasn't that your breath stank, it was that your heart did. When somebody says you need to wash your mouth out, they don't mean your breath, they mean your heart. That's what James means here. You need to go wash your hands. Dirty lives, sinful lives, ungodly lives. And if you think that's bad enough, telling somebody to go wash your hands, look what he followed it up with. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's so, uh, you know, politically incorrect to say that these days, but James doesn't care what people think is politically incorrect. James wants you to hear the truth and be broken over your sins and love the one who died for your sins. That's what James wants. And granted, a lot of people aren't gonna listen to somebody who keeps calling everybody sinners, but James knows that when it's God who draws sinners in, when you're called a sinner, you should be convicted of being a sinner. And so he says, cleanse your hands. Wash your hands, you sinners. And I'm not sure what offends you more, being called a sinner or being called an adulterer, because he called us that last week in verse four. Remember that? James chapter four, verse four says, you adulterous people sleeping with the wrong person taking your clothes off with people you shouldn't be taking your clothes off with, doing things with people you shouldn't be doing things with. And he's not talking about people, he's talking about God. You're unfaithful to God. The very equivalent of what that looks like in a practical life is an issue, but it's not even the biggest issue to James. James is saying you are unfaithful to God. This is wrong. You sinners, go wash your hands. Number five, purify your hearts. You see the connection there. The issue was never dirt on the hands. The issue was sin in the heart. And so he moves very easily and quickly from cleanse your hands, you sinners, to purify your hearts, you double-minded. Or as we learned last weekend at the men's retreat, you double-souled, a two-souled person. Mm. Straddling the fence. 
trying to have it both ways. Have your cake and eat it too. Lukewarm, not exactly hot water, not exactly cold water, lukewarm water. Believers that are in the world and of the world, if you will. And James wants us to know God will not have it that way. God will not have it that way. We are to be people who want our hearts to be pure. Now we know that we cannot purify our own hearts. We know that that can only be done through Jesus. That water right there didn't do anything for our gentleman that was baptized today. That water is to be a reflection of what Jesus is doing in his heart. That's the truth. But because we believe that and Jesus is a powerful God and Savior to change our lives, we are to be asking him to purify our hearts. Commentator Moose says, clearly, James sees his readers are both Christian and in need of a wake-up call that will bring home to them the seriousness of their departure from godly attitudes and behavior. You double-minded, James says. He said this before. If you look back to chapter one, verse eight, he had already called them that. In chapter one, verse eight, he says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That is the person who doubts. That's the person who is tossed by every wave of the sea and wind of doctrine. It's the person who should not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord because they are not focused on the Lord. They are focused on the world and yet claiming to be focused on the Lord. And this is double-minded, two lives. Two-faced, if you will, to bring it home. Living a double life. Folks, we are to purify our hearts. We are, want, we are to want our hearts to be set on God. Number one, submit yourselves to God. Number two, resist the devil. Number three, draw near. Number four, cleanse your hands. Number five, purify your hearts. Number six, be wretched and grieve. Mm. Number seven, mourn. Number eight, weep or well. Six, seven, and eight go together. If you look down here at verse nine, you have all three of those in a row. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Are we at a funeral? Those are terms we use in tragedy, are they not? Isn't that what we use when we're devastated? Isn't that what we use when our hearts are broken and our eyes are crying and our souls are weary because we have seen something so hurtful and painful? You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And for as hard as the toughest funerals are, they are just a small scale example of the believer who boldly sins against their God. We ought to be wretched and mourning and weeping for so many of the things that we've gone okay with. I'm tempted to go on for an hour right here on this point with how much our posture and attitude does not bother us when we sin against God. Our posture and attitude is so turned toward the good that we do 
that we have fallen into the world's way of thinking that we ignore the sin against God. And that is not Christianity. The world focuses on the good that they do, not believers. We focus on the sin that is in us that we grieve over and we need to repent for. How many times does Jesus tell us that people lived good lives or did good things only to find out that them got them nothing? How many times does Jesus teach us that believers lived good lives and did good things only to find out they didn't even know that they were doing it? They were just serving God, living lives of repentance, an attitude and posture before God that says, oh, I hate my sins. You gotta be careful here when we start talking about sins because we all struggle with sins and various different types of sins. And anytime you start naming some sins, it sounds like I'm naming yours and I'm not naming mine. How ugly it is to be a pastor that has all kinds of patience for you all, but no patience toward my children. Dads struggle with patience, don't we, dads? How ugly it is for me to have so much patience for you all. And I, whether you think so or not, I try to have patience with you all. But if I don't have patience with them, come on. Bragging about being a good pastor to you all that's got patience for you all, but no patience for them. We both ought to be wretched and mourn and weep that we would overlook that. What does it profit a man if he pastors his church well? and yet forfeits his family. What good is that? What about the way we talk? My kids will come to me sometimes and say they were watching a movie or YouTube video and they said a cuss word on it. I'll say, okay, what, what word was it? And they'll start spelling it out to me. In our family, we don't say the cuss words. We don't even say them when we're telling somebody. I'm a 40-year-old man, and if we're talking about cuss words, we still spell it out. We don't want to be close to it. It's unbelievable how just comfortable we've gotten with some big, bad things. It's kind of normal. I think cuss words are okay. In our homes, the F word is a regular thing, and y'all know that. We're, we're out of control. And our neighbors, we think, are the problem with this world. And we want so badly to get focused on everybody else and this world's falling apart and people are crazy. James is looking me and you right in the eye and say, you ought to be wretched for you. And you ought to mourn for you. And you ought to weep and wail for you because we get so used to sin. Sexual morality is the most normal thing in the world now. We'll justify why it's okay for us to be in sexual sin and convince ourselves that we're doing well in so many other areas that we don't need to address that one. We don't mourn over sin. James gives 10 commandments here what it looks like to humble yourselves before God. Three in a row right here that sound like a funeral. I remember when I was playing high school basketball, we lost a lot of games. I had such a good coach. He was invested in us. He taught us a lot. He loved us like his sons. He taught me to shave when I was a freshman. He said, you don't ever play a game without shaving, so I had to learn to shave. 
I remember one time we had just got run off the court. We probably lost by 25 points. Riding back home on the bus, we had our headphones in, we were singing, we were rapping, we were just having a great old time. All of a sudden, he stopped the bus on the side of the road. He comes back there in the middle of the bus and he says, and he, he could get heated up real quick, and he says, what is there to be happy about right now? We just played a terrible game. We didn't do anything we had practiced this week. And y'all act like it don't bother you. What is there to be happy about right now? Christians have bought into the world's message that we deserve to be happy above everything. And so when we should be crying our eyes out or on our knees, when we should be beating our chest like the tax collector that couldn't lift his head up to heaven and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When that should be the prayers coming out of our mouth because of the sin in our lives, we don't. Everybody else is the problem. I can't tell you how many times I hear as a pastor, I, I just deserve something better. It's just your classic hypocrisy where we're more bothered by everybody else than we are by ourselves. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter six, that great scene where, God's, where Isaiah, Isaiah sees God show up in the temple? Remember that? An amazing scene. And the seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You remember that? And Isaiah is God's man, the prophet. He's an awesome prophet. He's a man of God. Do you remember what he said? Do you remember what he said? Woe is me, God. I am a person, a man of unclean lips. He was a man of God. He was a prophet. He was an awesome Isaiah. And his problem wasn't the people that he was preaching to. His problem was him. Now, granted, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. He said, we've all got problems. But he started with himself. How profound it is that his wretchedness and his grief and his mourning and his weeping and his welling started with him. There's a time to be happy, no doubt about it. But there's also a time to mourn. Mourn our sin. Number nine, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There are actually two here in number nine. Change your laughter to mourning, change your joy to gloom. Now, if you've been listening to some TV preachers or you've been reading, all you read is morning devotionals, you may not agree with James. You think there's no place for mourning and gloom in my Christianity? James says exactly the opposite. Get rid of your joy, he says. He says, get rid of your laughter. Now, obviously, there's a place for it. We laugh. We're happy. So happy. But when it comes to sin against our God, it bothers us. And then lastly, number 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Notice that this is not a doom and gloom. This is not James trying to be the harshest preacher in town so that all the believers are miserable. He's showing them the secret to life. 
He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who bows his knee to God will be lifted up. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Your love is better than life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Where must I go? You have the answers to eternal life. We could go on and on with the treasure that Jesus is, that the Bible teaches us. But Jesus is the treasure And coming to the end of ourselves and posturing ourselves and our attitude before him with a brokenness for sin and a repentant, humble heart is the key. Nystrom says, this attitude of humility allows us clearer vision, clearer vision to see our own need for God and to perceive his answer of Jesus being the reward. It is in this humility that we will finally see. There's so much discussion about what is wrong with the church and what is wrong with the world and what needs to change. I've heard so many times that this is the most important election in my life. I don't believe it. I do know that what needs to be changing is believers who are humble before God. That our posture and our attitude would be humble. Today is November the 1st. Yesterday was October the 31st, which some people recognize it as Halloween, but some people recognize it as Reformation Day, right? October 31st from 1517, the year 500 years ago, where Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church, to the door recognizing that there are problems within the religious system that are not faithful to the Bible. 95 points, statements, 95 theses of problems that he found in the church that needed to be changed or corrected. And here is number one. There are 94 others, but here is number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, which he did, and you know that he did, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That is number one of the 95. When we say attitude and posture before God, we mean all of it. We mean every bit of us. We mean Sunday mornings and Friday nights. We mean with our enemies and with our children. We mean days. We mean nights. We mean 24-7. We mean in the bed with who we're in the bed with. We mean on the streets with the way we speak our language is to be a posture and attitude that says, nobody loves me more than Jesus. Nobody wants good for me more than Jesus. Nobody cares for me more than Jesus. He gave his life for me and I surrender my life to him. If you want to live, and live forever. Humble yourselves before God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for James's strong words. God, help our church to not get upset when we go so long like this. And help us to have a posture and attitude that says, God reigns over my life. God, help us to not be bold and brash in areas that we should not be bold and brash. Help us to not be wimpy and lacking courage when when courage and strength is called for. 
Help everything that we do to show repentance, humility before you. God, change the Christian, the church is posture and attitude before you, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know that we've gone long. We'll blame it on the baptism, not the sermon. But let's respond here. If you know that here today, James 4 was written for you, then let's respond. If you need to turn to Christ, let's do it. If your family needs some humbling, lead the way. If you wanna be a part of our church, let us know. As we sing, let's respond.